Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. So I've had guests on the show to talk about how to defend yourself from violent attacks, but what can you do to de-escalate what are potentially violent confrontations so things don't come to fist blows? And how do you deal with people who get in your face and act in verbally belligerent ways? Well, my guest today has spent his career studying the psychology of aggressive people and how to handle them. His name is Sean Smith, and he's a psychologist and the author of the book, Surviving Aggressive People, Practical Violence Prevention Skills for the Workplace and the Street. And today on the show, Sean and I discuss why you need to worry more about aggressive attacks from people you know rather than from strangers, uh, the difference between desperate aggression and expert aggression, and tactics you can use to prevent tense social situations from escalating to violence. Really great show with a lot of practical takeaways. After the show, check out the show notes at aom.is slash aggressive for links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. All right, Sean Smith, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. I'm a big fan of your site and what you do. Well, I appreciate that. Um, So you're the author of the book, Surviving Aggressive People, and we're going to get Get in the details of how to do that, what that means. But before we do, let's talk a bit about your background. Uh, you're a psychologist with a private practice now, but uh, you've also done work in detox centers and places where you probably dealt with a lot of aggressive people. How did your work there influence your ideas about how to handle people when they get when they start showing aggression? Well, all the way through this, um, in developing and writing this book, I, I was looking for some kind of organized way of thinking about handling aggression. And long before I ever got to the detox centers and the residential treatment facilities and so forth, I, my father, when I was a kid, he bought a, I was nine years old, he bought a bar in Commerce City, Colorado, which is an industrial area north of Denver. And um, I got to watch my dad, who was, he was a little rough around the edges, but he was a brilliant street psychologist. He knew how to handle people. He knew what motivated people and how to calm people down and how to make uh, situations resolve peacefully. And watching him do this, when I spent my nights and weekends at that bar, it really got me curious about people and how they work and how he was doing what he was doing because it seemed like a, it seemed like a superpower to me to be able to, to manage people. And so uh, as, I grew, as I grew older, I started looking for uh, an organized way to think about aggression and how to de-escalate people. And it just wasn't much out there. So I, I went into martial arts and um, there's a lot of great psychology there and a lot of great tidbits and information, but no real organized way of thinking about de-escalating people. And I went to college and same thing, a lot of great information, but no organized way of thinking about it. So really in answer to your question, what, before I got to the detox facilities and so forth about the time that i was getting frustrated and searching and trying to find people who knew how to do this uh, a bunch of businesses in denver got together and invited the guardian angels to come to denver to uh, clean up the streets so that their businesses could do a little better Uh, denver wasn't the the thriving area that it was back now back then and when i heard that they were coming to town i started looking into them and i really i learned that this is a group of people who will intervene when they see a problem but they don't carry weapons they don't beat people up they relied on their, their wits and their skills and, and the radios that they carried. And uh, I thought maybe this would be a group of people who has some systematic way of thinking about de-escalating people. And it turned out that I met a lot of really, like my father, brilliant street psychologists who knew how to do this. So, so that, that kind of got me on the path of organizing this information. So really all this information in the book, I know nothing. I'm just uh, giving you what smarter people than me have, have taught me. Okay, so let's get in the details of of handling aggressive people. Uh, where are most folks going to encounter aggressive people, and 
why is this such a vital skill to have? Even if you live, you know, in a relatively safe place, like an affluent suburb or middle class area of town. You know how you've heard that you're likeliest to have a car accident within a few miles of your house. And most of us heard that, that statistic thrown around and, I, and it makes sense. You know, I, I live in Denver, so that's where I spend my time. And I spend most of my time around my house and I'm like, this is, so of course that's where I'm going to have an accident. The chances of me having a fender bender today in Tulsa are slim to none because I'm not there. And the same thing, the same kind of reasoning applies to learning how to manage aggressive people. It's the people around you. Those are the people that you see every, the people that you see every day. Those are the people that you could potentially have a problem with. And uh, the, the crime statistics from the Department of Justice from 2012, a pretty recent statistic, 73% of violent crimes are committed by somebody that the victim knows. That's why it's important to know how to handle folks. Okay. Yeah. I mean, this, I mean, this is not just like family members or friends. It could be at the job is a place where a lot of uh, aggression takes place. Disgruntled employees or disgruntled clients. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And most of the feedback I get on this book, you know, I've written other books and I don't, I, they get Amazon reviews and so forth, but I get a lot of personal feedback on this book. And the personal feedback that I get is people not saying that they thwarted a mugging or that they saved a, a burning school bus full of children. It's that they calm down a, a client or they calm down their boss or they handled some sort of mundane uh, incident well because they, they learned how aggression works and they learned how to head it off quickly. Right. And I think maybe this is a skill that it's sort of degraded in people because since we don't, our, our interactions with other people are very transactional. Like you just sort of, I don't know, you, you don't deal with people as people anymore. I think maybe we've lost that skill, like that that street smart that your dad had. Yeah, I think one of the things that that we've lost in in, in recent years is you know, I walk around downtown and I see people walking around staring into their cell phones and, and listening to their their earbuds and so forth. And they're very tuned out to the environment and, you know, it's a good way to get hit by a bus, but um, more than that, people I've noticed more recently, and I don't know if it's happening more recently or if I'm just noticing it more recently that I can go to a party or I can have an interaction with somebody and talk to somebody for 10 or 15 minutes. And I can walk away knowing quite a bit about that person and realizing that sometimes they don't even know my name because they haven't bothered to find out about the person that they're talking about and I think that that's kind of an unwise way to go through life because if if you're walking down the street staring into your cell phone, obviously you're opening yourself up to, to dangers and, and you're not going to see things coming. But if you're operating that way socially and you're not taking the temperature of the room that you're in, you're not taking the temperature of the, the psychological temper of the street that you're walking down, you're not paying attention to the people around you, that's kind of the social equivalent of walking around with blinders on. It, it strikes me as unnecessary and really nothing to gain, but potentially a lot to lose. Right. All right. So you uh, classify aggression into two types. There's desperate aggression and expert aggression. What are the differences between the two types? And this is one of the first things that, that I learned from, from folks is that uh, I learned to think about aggression in terms of what is it trying to accomplish? And um, the, these two broad categories of behavior, they really haven't let me down. They, they seem to be pretty steady. And, and the, what I'm calling desperate aggression is really somebody who's trying to solve a problem and they're running out of options. And so they're getting cornered, they're getting upset, they're, they're getting worked up, and their mind is slowly closing down and turning into a, turning more to the emotional side of the mind rather than the rational side of the mind. 
Whereas what I'm calling expert aggression, you could just call that predatory behavior. This is somebody who's using aggression for profit, basically. Okay, so expert aggression would be something like a con man or a bully or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Somebody who's trying to gain socially, somebody who's trying to gain materially. Okay, so let's talk about these two types of aggression in detail. Um, What are the signs that a desperate aggressive person gives off? And can you walk us through a scenario of of desperate desperate aggression in action? Yeah, I saw it just just the other day, and it it turned out well. So I'll put this out there as a good scenario because it turned out okay. But um, when somebody's becoming desperate, you probably... Now, one of the things I say early in the book is that there's really nothing in this book that you don't already know. We just need to put some words to it. And you could probably guess that when somebody's becoming desperate, they're going to show signs of distress. They're going to show physical agitation. Their voice is going to change. Their posture is going to change. Their movements are going to change. The, the things that they're talking about are going to change and narrow. And sometimes people go in an opposite direction. They don't become more expansive and, and more agitated. Sometimes people become... Uh, more subdued and more cornered and more quiet until they lash out. So again, things that probably we all know, and these are the things that characterize somebody who's losing a sense of control. They feel like they have a problem to solve. They're they're feeling frightened and scared. And so they get that adrenal response. And the scenario that I saw just last week was I went to a, a Chinese restaurant by my house. It's one of my favorite places. And one of the waitresses there uh, was getting kind of harassed by a a customer and it had to do with soup and I'll spare you the details, but he was pushing her into a corner about soup. And um, what was happening is the reason this is a brilliant showcase is because this took place over probably, it seemed like a long time, but it was probably about 45 to 60 seconds. And during that 45 to 60 seconds, I could see her systematically closing off her options. So she, he was saying that he wanted something. She would propose a solution. He would meet that solution with rejection, and, and he was pretty rude about it. And so each time she, he did that, you could see her physically becoming more agitating. She was starting to become loud. She was starting to act like somebody who felt like she was trying to solve a problem and she just had no options. And everything she was doing, she was caught between her boss who wanted one thing and the customer who wanted something else. And she didn't know which way to go. Finally, she, she just threw her hands up and walked away, which was the right thing to do. But I loved that it was such a clear demonstration of him systematically closing down her options and her systematically becoming more emotionally driven. Right. So the the, the mammal, like the human part of her, the prefrontal cortex started shutting down and started going back to the sort of mammalian brain, reptile Yeah, exactly. Brain. Right. Yeah. Well, let's talk about expert aggression. Um how do you how do you know you're dealing with an expert aggressor, um, and what's the difference between the signs they give off from a, a person who's showing desperate aggression? All right, this is one of my favorite topics. I was I was bullied horribly as a kid, which is one of the reasons I idealized my father because I saw him handling bullies, and I you know it changed my world to know that somebody could actually handle bullies and, and have things turn out peacefully. But um, I love the topic of predatory behavior, expert aggression, and I think the easiest way to think about the way people behave when they're being predatory is to look at the way animals behave when they're being predatory. And again, this is nothing that we don't already know. We could all sit down and describe the way uh, a big cat on the savanna approaches a herd. There's two things that that 
that predator has to account for. Number one, it can't expend too much energy because the energy is expensive. And if he wastes his energy, or if that, that animal wastes his energy uh, trying to take down one animal and it shows poorly, it might not have enough energy to take down the next animal, launch another attack. So it has to be very mindful of energy, which means, number two, it has to pick the target very carefully. And so that's why we don't see um, lions jumping out of trees, shouting Geronimo on the way down with a knife in their teeth because they can get hurt and it's expensive to scare everybody and just be chaos. What they do is they approach things very methodically. You see the cat circling the herd, sizing up the herd, looking for the one that's, that's going to be the good target. It's all very methodical, all very uh, logical. And humans do the same thing. Now, since we're, we're predators, since we're, um, you know, well, we are predators, but since we're verbal creatures, we have uh, all of these rituals that we follow that are more complex, but it's basically the same thing as the ritual of circling the herd. We use uh, verbal distractions to, to kind of test and poke and prod. We will test boundaries and see if we can uh, get past a little boundary. And then we find we learn a little more about the target when we, when we breach a boundary. Um, and, and if you want a scenario, there's, there's one in the book. Uh, there's a lady here in Denver named Christina who uh, was assaulted one time. And she tells her story because she, she wants to, she wants other people to know that how this stuff works and, and uh, how to avoid it. And her story is that she was working in an office building. She had a, a man coming around the office building that she'd seen a couple times. And he looked like he sort of belonged there, sort of not, like he kind of had the right clothes to be working around the building, but kind of not. And one day, she was leaving the office a little bit later than she usually does. And this guy was there and he insisted on uh, giving her a ride to this party that she knew or this picnic that he knew that she was going to be going to. And the way he approached her was to uh, act like her savior. He was going to give her a ride. He, he knew that she was headed up to the mountains. And so he talked about headed up to the mountains where this picnic was going to be. And he insisted that she didn't want to be on the highway by herself. And she had this little voice in her head as this conversation was unfolding that I, I really shouldn't be trusting this guy, but she ignored that voice. And every time she ignored that voice and he breached a little boundary, like for instance, getting her closer to his car, um, he knew that he was succeeding and he, he got a little better at getting her to the next step. And eventually he got her in her car, took her up to the mountains and assaulted her. And you know, it turned out kind of poorly, but the, the, the good thing that she tries to bring out of this is the lesson of listening to your intuition and understanding how predators circle in and, and ever narrowing circles. And they try to breach those little boundaries. Gotcha. So yeah, so yeah, what the expert aggressor does is they test boundaries get your trust and see if they can cross those boundaries. And once they see they can cross boundaries, they'll actually go in for the, the big time kill, I guess you can say. Yeah, a lot do. Yeah. And it can happen. It can unfold very quickly. That one happened to unfold pretty slowly, but uh, you know, it doesn't take very long for a lot of these things to occur. Like for example, one, one scenario in the book is about a guy who was closing down in a small Midwestern town. He was closing down the convenience store that he worked at for the night and somebody showed up at his door. I was just asking for a glass of water. I need a glass of water. Can I please have a glass of water? You know, I've been walking all night and I just need, that's all I want. I promise. All I need is a glass of water. And this, this short conversation about water. And so finally he unlocks the door that he had had locked. This guy comes in and robs him. And the whole thing probably didn't take very long, but 
It was that initial breaching of the boundary was even having the conversation with the guy. All right. So let's talk about uh, the five ground rules of dealing with aggressive people that you talk about in your book. What are these five ground rules and do they change whether you're dealing with a desperate aggressor or expert aggressor? I, they, they really don't. Like what I noticed in, um, in these, these two very different ways of using aggression, there are some ground rules, some ways of carrying your way, carrying yourself through the world is really what the ground rules are is how do you present yourself in, in the world and it really don't change depending on, on what kind of aggressor you're dealing with but for different reasons like for the, the first one for example is establishing common ground it's one of the most important things you can do and this is what i was talking about this is what i was complaining about earlier when i was talking about people not getting to know each other uh, establishing common ground means creating some commonality with the people around you. And it can be as simple as saying hello to somebody and making some eye contact as you're going down the street, particularly people that you're a little bit worried about. Make the eye contact, say hello, um, be confident, carry yourself well, but also create some connection between you two. And one of the, one of my teachers in this regard was a, a cop who worked in, in Denver here. And he would sometimes work the, the intake counter at one of the local jails. And one of his techniques with everybody who came through that door, so prisoners have, you know, people have just been arrested by the police, they're coming to the jail, he's the first person they deal with. And so it, automatically these people are hostile toward him, they don't like him. And one of his techniques was before he did anything, was to do something to establish common ground. Maybe he would notice a shirt that they were wearing that, that had a team logo on or something. He would make some comment about that shirt or he would notice a tattoo and just ask about it. Some little thing that says, hey, you and I are both people here. You and I are both on the same level, so even though we're not, but don't view me as an enemy. View me as somebody who's a little bit interested in me. That was the message that he was sending. And more often than not, it worked. Of course, sometimes it didn't, but there's nothing to lose. It only took him a second to do it. So why not do it? All right. So there's established common ground. Um, what, was, what are some of the other ground rules? So the other ground rules are not uh, shaming the aggressor, like particularly with, a, with somebody who's feeling desperate, not telling them that they're being ridiculous or, or not uh, being dismissive toward their concerns and not shaming yourself. Uh, which is very easy to do when you're, when you're behaving as if you're powerless. So if you're dealing with somebody who's, who's desperate and they're looking for a solution and you're sending the message that you, you don't have the solutions that you're kind of helpless, that's not going to help them get back on track. And if you're dealing with a predator being somebody who, who shows yourself as powerless and, and overly self-deprecating, um, again, if they're looking to breach boundaries, well, you've given them something that they can breach. So being too self-deprecating, although self-deprecating can show power, uh, sacrificing boundaries, behaving powerless, that, that, those are all examples of shaming yourself. Another important ground rule is knowing what you want to accomplish in a, in a situation. Uh, it's really easy to just get caught into arguing with someone because that, that lizard brain that you're talking about, that reptilian mind, that's contagious. And so when somebody's arguing with you and they're at a, a very low emotional level, they're operating out of emotion, it's really easy for me or you to shut off our intellectual brains and just start arguing emotional. So it's really important that you keep in mind, right, what am I actually trying to accomplish here? Gotcha. And then being flexible about how you get there. And I think one of the biggest one is just listening to your intuition. Um, it's We have these these giant brains that are processing tons of information and it's not all verbal. Some of it is just, just shows up as a feeling and being practicing, listening to that, knowing how it speaks to you and 
know, like my friend Christina would say, being able to listen to it when it's uh, when it's trying to talk to you. Yeah, I mean that idea of intuition. I think it's a lot of it's, it's a hard thing to grasp for people, particularly you know us. We think we should be rational. Intuition seems so irrational. I mean, how do you how do you train your intuition? How do you re- figure out whether you're being overly paranoid or whether like yeah, this is actual like you're this something's a problem. You should follow this hunch that you're having. Well, I got two things on it. The first one is um, that it, for different reasons men and women experience exactly what you said. It's tough to listen to your intuition. Women are taught traditionally um, not to be emotional. They're, they're taught to be polite. And this is what happened with Christina when she, when she was the one who was assaulted in the mountains. Her intuition was telling her not to follow this guy. But her training, her social training was, well, you have to be polite. You can't make people feel bad. And so it was that motivation that led her to deny her intuition. And then... Um, I think the second part of it is just recognizing your intuition for what it is. If it's, well, I didn't finish the male part. You know, the, the male part is that I think men are often taught to ignore our intuition because it's emotional and we're supposed to be stoic and rational. So men and women both have similar difficulty for different reasons. But I think uh, ways to start listening to your intuition is number one, to know, recognize what it is that's stopping you from listening to it if, if you're having trouble listening to it and recognizing how it shows up in your body because this isn't, it's just information that your body is processing and knowing, being able to identify what kind of thoughts show up when your intuition is speaking to you. They might be indirect thoughts about what's going on, what kind of emotions are showing up. Maybe you're just feeling uneasy or maybe you're feeling like retreating, being able to identify that as something that says your intuition is talking to you, like a little dashboard, like a red light dashboard on your red light on your dashboard that comes on that says there's a problem. Sometimes it's not clear what the problem is. There's just a problem. And then physically knowing how it shows up for you. Do you feel a tightness in your chest? Do you feel a, you know, you start getting a headache or a throbbing or just, do things become distant? So really keying in on the cognitive, the emotional and the physical warning signs that your intuition is trying to tell you something. And then being willing to stop and step aside and ask yourself, right, what's going on here? Right. And like, don't be afraid to act on it. Cause like, what's the harm? Like what's the worst thing? I mean, at best, like you prevent yourself from getting attacked at worst. You kind of embarrass yourself a little bit, maybe. Yeah. I, I tend to look at everything as like a Vegas bet. Is this a sucker's bet where the best thing that can happen is I break even and likelier that I lose, or is this a good bet where I can break even and win? And in, in Christina's case, she was the one who was assaulted in the mountains. I think what she would say is it would have been uncomfortable for her to say no to this guy, but beyond that, it would have cost her nothing. And so it would have been the safe bet to just listen to her intuition. When you talk about dealing with uh, desperate, aggressive people, you talk about using listening, empathizing, and uh, creating options. Um, The acronym is LEO you use in the book. Where do most people mess up when implementing LEO with a desperate aggressor? And all the time that I spent in detox facilities and residential treatment facilities and brain injury units, the, the, and even out on the street of the guardian angels, the, the place that I saw people struggling the most was the listening phase. Because and it's not because we're bad people. It's because most of us have this urge to fix the problem. And so when somebody's trying to explain what's going on, why they're frustrated, the, I think the impulse in a lot of people is to calm them down and to get them to stop making us tense. 
but really the opposite thing is what you want to do. If somebody's talking to you about what's bothering them, let them go. You, you don't want to talk over them. They're going to run themselves out eventually. Nobody can stay uh, upset and agitated forever. So as long as somebody is talking and complaining, um, it's uncomfortable to listen to, but it's an important thing to do. And that's where most people, I think, struggle. What are some things people can do to overcome that tendency to want to jump right away to so- trying to solve this person's problem? Like, how do you listen with a desperate aggressor? I think that you retrain yourself. And, and I'm very big on scenario training. I, I know that scenario training is not practical for most people, but a part of the section of the book is about dealing with uh, agitated patients in, in health facilities. And I'm very big on uh, nurses and, and healthcare workers and doctors doing scenario trains where they can practice these interventions where you have somebody pretending to be an agitated person and you learn to sit with that agitation and sit with the discomfort of it and ask them questions that are guiding them toward a solution, but not try to shut them down and immediately fix the situation. Gotcha. And what do you do if LEO doesn't deescalate the situation? Say you've listened, you empathized with them, you've helped create some options for them, uh, but that still doesn't work. They're still agitated and, and aggressive. Yeah, it's, I should preface that this answer by saying anytime you're dealing with any of these people, your first impulse should be to get out of there. And the assumption is that you already considered escape and it's not really practical. And um, so now you're trying to rely on these, um, these verbal de-escalations. But if it doesn't work, uh, you know, you have to start thinking about escape really. And you can go back and you can, if somebody's continuing to be agitated, you can go back and, and recognize that agitation doesn't last forever. Typically there's some drug induced agitation sometimes lasts a really long time. And if you're trapped with somebody, typically um, the agitation is not going to last forever. So if you're trying to listen to somebody and you're trying to empathize and understand what it is that they're trying to solve and you're trying to provide options and none of it's working and you can't escape, you can always go back to keeping them talking because more, as long as somebody's talking, they're usually, not attacking and maybe amping themselves up a little bit, but um, talking is good. Yeah. Talk, keep them talking. All right. Um, So let's talk about expert aggressors. So what expert aggressors do is they test boundaries. And if they show that you'll give in to a boundary, they'll escalate until they'll finally do the thing that will get them what they want. So how do you nip expert aggressors in the bud? So this boundary testing doesn't even happen. You nip them in the bud by reacting as or responding as quickly as you can when you start to notice that something doesn't feel right. And I outlined uh, six or seven examples of predators testing boundaries and, and grooming people for attacks. So somebody who's being over-accommodating, for example, in Christina's example, this guy was being way too nice to a total stranger. He was apparently trying to help her. So that's one example of somebody who's just trying to get a foot in the door. So they're, they're ignoring your protestations when you say that you don't need help or you don't want them around, but they're, they're they just keep pushing and they're trying to get that, their nose under the tent, their camel's nose under the tent or get their foot in the door and trying to just wheedle their way in a little bit. Or somebody who's uh, just testing personal boundaries, like somebody who's standing too close, almost as if they're trying to see how you're going to react or just violating little social conventions seeing how people respond or exploiting sympathy or guilt. I outlined several of these to look for. 
And as soon as you notice them, that's the time to react at, at the very earliest phase because the harder, the longer it goes, the harder it becomes to respond to them. And if you respond early, typically you can do so pretty politely and you can do so with some finesse and you can send the signal, I'm not the target that you're looking for and things can end early, hopefully. Right. So yeah, expert aggressors are predators of opportunity. So if they see there's not an, it's going to require a lot of energy or effort or time, they're not going to waste their time. Exactly. Okay. Um, I mean, what are some things that people can do? I mean, I mean, I guess expert aggressors, they look for victims, um, easy victims. What's, what are some things that people can do to look less like a victim so they're less likely to be targeted by an expert aggressor? I think that um, as people study this kind of thing, and, and anytime you start putting some energy in this area, learning how to not be a victim, you start carrying yourself differently. And that's really what this is dealing with expert aggressions is all about is the nonverbal signals that you send to them. So you want to send the signal that you're somebody who's capable and resourceful and confident and happy and um, somebody who's not going to be easily isolated, somebody who's uh, not going to be easily profited from, somebody who's not who's very attuned to these testing rituals. Because the whole point of the testing ritual is that they're looking, a predator is looking for the bad target. If you show them that they're the bad target, then there's almost kind of an agreement there that, that takes place where, all right, I get it. I'm not going to mess with you. I'll go to the next person. Okay. Well, Sean, I have a question here that just popped up to my mind. Um, how does this change in the world of, of the online world? Right. I, I think, you know, with cyberbullying or, you know, trolls and these, these seem like these are expert aggressors. I mean, how does the, these tactics change when you're online? They are expert aggressors, but it's such a small and petty game that they're getting. The people who go on a website and troll and try to get people agitated, they're not profiting materially from it. They're just getting a little bit of juice, I guess, that makes them, I don't know what they get from it, but it's, it's small. It's not really costing anybody anything other than making people angry and keeping them up at night. And I came across a story recently that, uh, who was it? It was NPR, I think, is closing down their comment section. And they're doing it partly in response to this, that you've got this very small group of people who are just kind of ruining for everybody, and it's expensive for them to maintain this comment section, so why do it? And I recently made, you know, I saw that, and I thought, well, that's a brilliant idea. Why haven't I done that? So I have my own blog, and it's the comments are, they range from kind of interesting to just nauseatingly hostile. And I, I decided to do the same thing. I'm just not going to deal with it anymore. So I think that, Online, it's very easy to just turn away from the trolls and yeah, let them go bother someone else. Right. Okay. Well, let's talk about this. Uh, so we talked about um, expert and uh, desperate aggression. These are sort of the normal types of aggression you see, but you also talk in, in your book about handling aggression caused by neurobehavioral problems. There might be a few people who are listening to this that are dealing with this. Say they have um, a family member or a friend who had a traumatic brain injury, which one of the symptoms sometimes is increased aggression, or they have a child who has you know, a severe form of autism that you know, causes aggression as well because there's like you know, misunderstanding between the parent and the child. Uh, how does your approach change to handling aggression in these sorts of scenarios? It changes pretty dramatically. And the reason I, I put that, it's an appendix in the book. It's, it's a couple of chapters at the end. And the reason I put it in there is I, I did my dissertation 
this type of work in a brain injury unit, helping helping staff members de-escalate, keep things calm. And what happens, like you said, there's there does tend to be uh, periods of aggression that people go through after head injuries, for example, or, or aggression that is induced by medication. And what's happening there typically is is a disconnect between our frontal cortex that tells us how to be calm and cool and that lower reptilian brain, that limbic system that is very emotion driven. And so basically the brakes are taken off of the aggression. It's not that they become more aggressive, it's that the brakes are broken. And a couple of dramatic differences is number one, if you're if you're in a home, your own home, or if you're and you have somebody like this living with you, or if you're in a facility, number one is that you have teamwork and you can practice scenarios and you can prepare and you can construct the environment such that a person has a place to retreat when they're trying to solve a problem. And that's huge. And, and the other big part of that is the scenario training and, and you being prepared and you knowing how this person works, which you don't know with a stranger. But if you're dealing with somebody that you deal with every day, you can quickly get a sense of where their triggers are, how to get them to take a break so that they can start solving their own problem. And usually in these cases, almost always a sense of desperation that the person is feeling. And so if you can create a time element where they can cool off a little bit and then build in a structure where you're helping them figure out how to meet, uh, create solutions, then the violence can decrease dramatically. And then there's just the basic techniques of how do you respond? How do you uh, speak to somebody? Like when somebody in a room is becoming agitated, how do you approach that room? Do you approach as a team, you present this great big front that's coming toward them, or do you take a softer approach? I'm real big on the softer approach because most people in those situations are trying to get themselves under control. So the task of the people around them is to be as supportive of that as possible. Great. Well, hey, Sean, this has been a great conversation. Where can people learn more about the book and your work? Well, I have a blog called ironshrink.com and, and that's uh, it's the word iron and the word shrink all run together. And anything you want to know about me is up there and, and the book is up there as well. All right. Well, Sean Smith, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Brett. My guest today was Sean Smith. He's the author of the book, Surviving Aggressive People. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Also check out his website, ironshrink.com, where you can find more content from Sean on dealing with aggressive people as well as some other topics in psychology. Also check out the show notes at aom.is slash aggressive for links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the show, I'd appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps us out a lot. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Stay manly.